The Tom Woods Show, episode 1764. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. All right, we're doing two different things in this episode, okay? This this one's a two-parter. I wanted to give our friend Pete Canonis's documentary, The Monopoly on Violence, a bit of a shot in the arm. We talked to him about that some months ago, and it's a very well-done documentary about the state. And by the way, you can watch it at themonopolyonviolence.com, and you'll see your host here periodically in that documentary. But what follows for the first part of today's episode is the entirety of the interview I did from which they drew the bits and pieces that they used in the documentary. This is the full, and by the way, I'm not doing something I'm not allowed to do. This is actually available on YouTube if you really search around. But this is the full interview I did, unedited, for that documentary. And primarily, it deals with a topic that I've written about in the past, namely state nullification of unconstitutional federal laws and localism and stuff like that. That's what they wanted me to talk about. So that's what I talked about. So we're going to listen to that for the first part of today's episode. Now, in between my answers, the question that they asked me then appears on the screen. Now, you'll see the problem we face here with this being an audio podcast. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I know that I've got smart listeners here, and by context clues, you will figure out what the questions had to be when you hear my answers. There'll be little pauses between my answers, and that's what's going on. So I hope you like this, and if you do, I hope you'll go watch the full documentary over at themonopolyonviolence.com. The second half, I just have a few things I want to unload about with regard to the virus, and I, you know how conflicted I am about this, that I, if it was up to me, I'd talk about it nonstop, and I feel like I've been talking about it quite a bit. So today, it's a compromise, okay? I'm meeting you guys halfway. Half the episode is on something that has nothing whatsoever to do with the virus, and the other half does. So stay tuned for both halves, and here we go. The non-aggression principle says that nobody should initiate physical force against a peaceful person. And it's the kind of principle that everybody agrees with, right? We, when you hear it, you know, everybody's, well, of course I agree with that. I, I don't want to use physical force against anybody. But when you apply it consistently and across the board, you realize that it has actually quite radical implications, uh, implications regarding state power on many levels. And we libertarians are people who simply want to apply that across the board. We really, really, really don't believe in aggression. We think there is a very, very high threshold that has to be met in order for violence to be considered acceptable in society. I think when it comes to the most widely understood cases of unjustified aggression, there is a pretty broad range of agreement. I mean, yeah, not everybody thinks taxation is theft, but virtually everybody thinks murder can't be justified. Virtually everybody thinks you can't break into somebody's house and take his things. And that's the baseline we operate from. And if there are a handful of people who don't accept that, well, that's what we have self-defense for. But it doesn't invalidate the principle because some people don't hold it. Those people are just wrong. The very phrase states' rights and the idea of the states doing anything evokes in many people's minds the practice of slavery, such that Anybody raising the subject today gets accused of supporting slavery or all kinds of preposterous things like this. Obviously, nobody in the 21st century supports slavery, so this is ridiculous. 
but it gets thrown at us because most people don't know anything about U.S. history. So, for example, if I look through the history of so-called states' rights, in the first, let's say, 150 years of American history, what do I find it being used for? Well, I find it being used to defend the freedom of speech, to defend against unconstitutional searches and seizures, to defend against a military draft during the War of 1812 that was proposed that some people like Congressman and then Senator Daniel Webster thought was unconstitutional. I can go down and find quite a few things that have nothing whatsoever to do with slavery. Overwhelmingly, these principles were used relating to issues that had nothing to do with slavery. But in fact, they were even used to fight against slavery. And we see that not only in the personal liberty laws, which were used to fight against the fugitive slave laws that existed in the 19th century. We have states, for example, refusing to allow the federal government to use its facilities, to use its jails to hold suspects, or to let any state official take part in running after a fugitive slave or anything like that. But it went even beyond that. And in, for example, in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin legislature just basically said, we're not doing this because it's true there is a fugitive slave clause in the Constitution, but that does not say that therefore absolutely any means the federal government might conceivably come up with to enforce this would be constitutional. So in Wisconsin, they, they argue that this was obviously a violation of the Constitution. Their state Supreme Court cheered what their legislature said, and they said that when the federal government goes beyond its legitimate powers, it falls to the states to resist. And they were quoting from Thomas Jefferson's Kentucky Resolutions of 1799, which were even more radical than the ones he had written the previous year. This is 60 years later. They're referring back to a document laying out the powers of the states to resist unconstitutional power grabs by the federal government. You don't learn that in school. I mean, nobody learns about any of that. These documents are all sitting there. You can find the Kentucky Resolutions of 1799. You can find the Wisconsin legislative proceedings and what the state Supreme Court said. But the one place you won't find it is a U.S. history textbook. Secession is an approach you take when you have irreconcilable differences. That's, in effect, what happens. Right now in the United States, we have well over 300 million people, and we are divided right down the middle in how we look at the world. We have radically different worldviews. And instead of saying, why don't we work on an arrangement where people who think one way can just live according to those ideas and people who think another way can live that way? Instead, we feel like we have to win and triumph over our enemies. Well, there has to be one way to think that dominates the entire country. And at some point, you should ask yourself, is that really the most civilized way for us to organize society? Is that the most civilized way for human beings to live with each other? And I'm inclined to think that it would be better if we said, look, we, we just don't have the same vision for what society ought to be. And instead of every four years having a low-intensity civil war with each other to see who's going to ram ideas down the throats of the others, what if we say, well, why don't you live your way and we'll live our way and we'll see, you know, let the best man win kind of thing. That's all it is. It has nothing to do necessarily with slavery or anything else. There have been numerous cases of secession throughout world history. Sweden and Norway, for example, had nothing to do with slavery, obviously, uh, as did all the former Soviet republics that seceded with the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is just a smear attempt to make sure that we uppity peons stop having independent ideas, that, that the New York Times hasn't approved for us in advance. 
So they're going to accuse us of supporting slavery. And this, this is absurd, right? We're the most anti-slavery people you can possibly be. So that's right out. The thing is, the real reason they'll call you names for it is that secession is not on what I call the three by five card of allowable opinion. It's not an opinion that's been pre-approved for us by the Washington Post and the New York Times and the political and academic classes. So therefore, we peons are not allowed to entertain this idea. So therefore, it has to be demonized and rendered toxic in the minds of the public. That's why it's so important to point out how simple it is. It just means when you have irreconcilable differences, stop bashing each other over the head with clubs and just shake hands and go your separate ways. I think people should concentrate in that area where they feel like they have an advantage, where they are the best. And for a lot of people, they know their local conditions best, and they know how to argue a particular way for to a particular group. Like, for example, it could be marijuana legalization. And you may say, I know how to speak to people about this particular issue because I'm very knowledgeable about it, etc. Then let that person do that. But I wouldn't say that there's never any merit in a national level campaign of some sort, because obviously Ron Paul educated a lot of people from a national pulpit. So I would just say, I, I, I do believe most of the victories you're likely to have are going to come at your local level. You have no chance of influencing the U.S. Senate to do anything. But on your local level, well, you could, you know, you might even know your local state legislator. I mean, he might actually live on your street. There is a possibility that you could get some tax repealed or some onerous regulation repealed or something everybody hates, you can get it overturned. You've got a decent chance of that. And I tend to recommend that at least to get started because you want to get a victory under your belt. And if all you do is fight at the national level, it's going to be loss after loss after loss. And it gets demoralizing after a while. Every now and then it's, it's nice to win one. There are numerous examples of nullification being used to take back liberties on the local level. I mean, certainly what has happened in numerous states regarding marijuana is, practically speaking, nullification. Even if it wasn't carried out in precisely the way that it was in the 19th century, it's a state basically acting as if a uh, federal law does not exist. That's basically what happened. And in that case, you had an overwhelming public support for what the state was doing. And these people believed that the state was in the right and the federal government was in the wrong. And when that's the case, and that crossed party lines, it crossed ideological lines, you can get away with it. Now, it's, it's true. At any moment, yeah, the federal government could roll the tanks down, you know, the streets of Denver. But are they likely to do that? And is there a president who wants to expend that much political capital on that issue? Probably not. And we can think of numerous other examples. Recently, on the federal level, we got a, a right to try bill, which says that if you are suffering from a terminal disease and there's some experimental drug that you might be able to take, we're going to give you the option to take it. But that began as on the state level, as a series of states began introducing uh, right to try laws. Now, there's no authorization for a right to try law on the national level. They were just doing it. And as it turns out, they paved the way for a liberation that occurred on the national level. And you can go down the 10th Amendment Center you can go down the list of the various initiatives they have, and you'll see how many of them there are on such a wide array of issues that might appeal to both left and right. In 1798, the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed, and perhaps the most offensive aspects of those involved making it a crime to speak in such a way of the president or the Congress as to bring them into disrepute. And 
course, the partisan nature of this was obvious. You'll notice I left out the vice president. The vice president was Thomas Jefferson. You were allowed to say anything you wanted to about him. He belonged to the so-called Republican Party at that time. The Federalists occupied the presidency and the Congress, but there was a Republican vice president. So he's exempted from coverage there. Jefferson was finding that his mail was being opened. This is the vice president of the United States. His own mail is being opened. And naturally, there was some pushback to this, and it took the form of the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. Those states passed resolutions making clear that this was an unconstitutional exercise of power and that the states retained the right to resist unconstitutional exercises of power. And ultimately, in 1799, the word nullification came to be used. That was Jefferson's word for what the states could do in a case like that, simply act as if that law was null and void, because an unconstitutional law is null and void. It is not a law at all. And the New England states were all dead set against what Virginia and Kentucky were doing. How dare they not just get in line and obey the law? You look at why were they taking that position. They all supported the Sedition Act. They all wanted journalists thrown in jail. So today, when people say, oh, only Virginia and Kentucky stood up against... Okay, so you're going to side with New England, where their states came right out and said, we're all in favor of journalists going to prison. Are you sure that's the side you want to take? And not 10 years later, when the shoe was on the other foot and Jefferson's in power and his embargo is damaging the maritime economy of New England, well, guess who suddenly favors nullification? All those arguments against it from 10 years ago are all forgotten. So that's an important legacy. In fact, people in the 19th century, not today, because we've been taught to forget these documents, but in the 19th century, if you referred to the principles of 98, everybody knew what that meant. It meant the principles of the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions of 1798, which said the federal government has only the powers delegated to it. If it reaches beyond those powers, then the states have an obligation to resist. It's hard to answer the question, what is the best approach for achieving a more libertarian society? Because we have every possible strike against us. The educational establishment is against us, so kids are in school learning the opposite of what we believe 24 hours a day, basically. The political classes obviously don't have a vested interest in relinquishing power, so they're against us. The intellectuals want to get hired by the government to provide their alleged services, so they're not going to... So it is really difficult. We have a lot of obstacles. But I feel like, as with any major change, it has to start with hearts and minds. I mean, just like with the abolition of slavery, you have to start with hearts and minds. If you can't necessarily get the political class to come on board, you can get people to, you know, humanize the slaves in their own minds. And likewise, if I can't get the federal government to relinquish control over all the things that it dominates, I can get people to think differently. I can get them to think that. Maybe the version of events they learned in school where we were all trodden down by terrible robber barons who were paying us 10 cents an hour arbitrarily, and then these righteous crusaders for justice came along and fixed everything. All right, well, when you're seven years old, that sounds pretty plausible, but that is a ridiculous caricature of reality. And if we can get people to think a little bit differently, and here I think it's good to appeal to the rebellious nature of the youth, right? Let them know they've been lied to. I used to do that when I was a professor, right? I'd say, now look, I know you've been told X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to show you why that's false. I'm going to show you that that's false. And if, if you think I'm wrong, bring the evidence and we'll talk about it. But this is not right. And all of a sudden they sit right up and they think, 
who's been lying to me, right? Like they, they, that's about what how dare I got to find out the real truth. Well, there's something exhilarating about finding out what's the real story. And so you start there, well, maybe you can make some progress. All right, that's the first half of our episode. That's all finished now. And again, I want to urge you to check out that documentary at themonopolyonviolence.com. Pete did a great job on that. And let's go support him. Hey, folks, let's take a quick break to thank our brand new sponsor, BitTrust IRA. I know a lot of you guys out there are very interested in Bitcoin. A lot of you hold Bitcoin or are wondering about how to get into it. Well, Bitcoin has been one of the best performing assets of 2020 thus far. And you can add Bitcoin to your retirement account. But the cryptocurrency world can be confusing, especially for newbies. And how would you go about doing something like this? Well, that, my friends, is where BitTrust IRA comes in. They help you seamlessly and securely add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. And you're super secure. They store your private keys in nuclear bunkers with military-grade encryption. Ain't nobody getting a hold of those. With BitTrust IRA, you'll find the lowest trading fees in the industry. Plus, they have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investments. And if you have any questions, their team will guide you every step of the way. Go to bittrustira.com slash woods today to learn more. That's B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A.com slash woods. And for a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Tom Woods Show listeners. That's a $50 value. That's bittrustira.com slash woods. Now I want to turn to a few things related to the virus that I think might be of use to you or might be interesting to you if you don't know about them already. For one thing, back when we had Jennifer Cabrera on the show on episode 1750, she talked about a website she's had something to do with, namely rationalground.com, where you can get good rational reporting about COVID-19. And on that site, they now have a quite lengthy piece called A Rational Reopening Guide. And it is, as its subtitle indicates, a framework for operating any facility or business during COVID. And I think you may find this thing helpful. I almost did a whole episode on it, but then I realized just how technical and detailed it is, and I thought it just doesn't really lend itself to a full episode. Rather, I should just alert you to its existence, and if you'd like to go read it, you'll find it linked at tomwoods.com slash 1764. As soon as I saw this, I thought my listeners need to know about this. So that's one of the things that I'm going to link over there. Uh, Then a few other things that just caught my eye over the past few weeks, let's say, have been the following. And some of these really, now that I think about it, it's probably the last week, the last one week. Uh, First of all, back on October 12th, which is just about two and a half weeks ago uh, from the time I'm recording this, 2020, obviously, we uh, had that big event. We saw that big event in uh, Sanford, Florida. It, it was an event with Governor Ron DeSantis and the president. All the midwits said this was going to be a so-called super spreader event. Anytime there's a group of people together, it's always a super spreader event, according to, to the sophisticates here. So you got to wait two weeks, and then there'll be just piles of dead bodies everywhere. So I've, I've been a sport. You know, I've waited more than two weeks. And when you look at the figures the deaths have only declined during that entire period. There's no spike now that two weeks have gone by. The deaths have just declined the entire time. So therefore, the event is never mentioned again. That's the way this works. It's never mentioned again. It's not, ah, you know, I wonder, maybe there's, maybe there's something, maybe this virus is not like the kind of thing we learn in chapter two 
of introduction to epidemiology. Maybe there's something more to this virus we don't quite get. Maybe it's that you have to reach a very low threshold for herd immunity. Like, well, there are all kinds of possible things that could be at work here. But instead of having the curiosity to figure out what those are, because it doesn't go along with the cartoonish version of what it's supposed to be doing, it's supposed to be creating piles of corpses everywhere two weeks later, which just ignore episodes like this. I mean, at the time, of course, we'll call everybody a murderer. But then when no murders actually happen, we'll just, by then, of course, we've moved on to the next thing. So that's the first thing. Well, I guess the rational reopening plan was the first thing. That was the second thing. Third thing I want to tell you about that I just have to get off my chest. And a little bit of this was in my newsletter, which I hope you guys get. Go to wrongaboutlockdown.com. Make sure you're not running an an ad blocker or a pop-up blocker and get that ebook, and then you get on my list. And you're going to not be sorry that you did that, believe me. I pointed out that on September 25th, we had a headline from the Los Angeles Times saying that the state expected to see an 89% increase in COVID hospitalizations over the next month. 89% increase. Now, I I knew that wasn't going to happen, and I'm just some guy. It's it's like the Iraq War. I, I knew there weren't any weapons of mass destruction, and I'm just some schmuck, right? I'm not some top official. I'm just a guy. But I surmise, based on what I have seen, and based on what multiple sources tell me, that there are no such weapons. Well, likewise for this, I, I'm pretty darn sure there aren't going to be, uh, there isn't going to be that kind of jump. Not only wasn't there an 89% jump, because now over a month has indeed passed, there was a nearly 14% decline in hospitalizations at the very time they were warning that we should expect an 89% spike. Okay. Well, now the governor of Colorado has just warned that models suggest, now right away, the words models suggest ought to be making your skin crawl by now, frankly. Models suggest that his state, quote, will exceed all existing hospital capacity, unquote, by the end of the year, 2020. Now, I could be wrong about this, you know, and, and it's, it's risky to make predictions, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not going to happen. I'm going to go out on a limb based on everything else they've predicted and say that is not going to happen. I can't say that with absolute 100% certainty, you know, in the same way that I can tell you that my name is Tom Woods, but I think there's a pretty darn good chance that that is not going to happen. And yet it's like no matter how many of these things fail to come true, it doesn't affect the panickers at all. It doesn't make them think, huh, okay, well, that's good news. Maybe it's not as uh, threatening as I thought it was. That's good. I mean, I still want to be on my guard and, you know, stay safe, everybody, all that. But maybe you'd think it would make them say, huh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. No, it's like the the good news makes them crazy. They can't acknowledge it or it's crazy. It's just crazy. And then uh, since Governor DeSantis has opened up Florida, we've been doing great. Uh, The percentage of people going to the ER for COVID-related COVID-like illnesses, they're called, CLI, COVID-like illnesses, is down to 2.1%, which is lower than the U.S. 2.5%, which is already quite low, 2.1% with the state just open. And we've seen hospitalization. We, there's been no spike in hospitalizations since the, the, the state can open with no restrictions, no capacity restrictions, nothing. And this has been the case for several weeks now. So don't, don't give me the, well, you have to wait forever for the results to show up. We already have. We already have. And the numbers have been excellent. Deaths keep falling. And hospitalizations are, 
are at, are, you know, had had been falling, and now they're at sort of a plateau. And I, that was the one thing that I saw somebody say, well, hospitalizations are at a plateau. This is a guy on Twitter. But think about this. This is somebody who was predicting absolute catastrophe, dead bodies everywhere. And then when hospitalizations plateau, he acts like that's a vindication of his position. If I had told him, look, when we open up the state with no restrictions, the worst that'll happen is hospitalizations, which have been plunging for weeks and weeks, will simply plateau. He would have said, I was unbelievably naive to think that there'd be such a benign result. Then we get this benign result and he acts like it's the end of the world. No, it's, no, it's not. Nope. Uh, as far as I can see, most people have just more or less resumed their lives. And there are a lot of people in the United States who are thankful that a place such as Florida exists where you can go. And yes, there are still some irritations. And I won't be happy until every one of those stay six feet apart stickers is off every retail store floor. Nevertheless, you can live your life here. And the results have not been what was predicted. One of the things, though, that nevertheless does seem to drive panic is the issue of so-called cases, which just means that you got a positive test result. And we've seen that, as I've said in my newsletter, and I may be here on the show, the PCR testing is being done in the U.S. in such a way as to be so sensitive as to be identifying people who should not be quarantined at all, who are not who clearly are not infectious. So in tomorrow's episode, I'm bringing on a genuine, legit, 100% expert whose credentials can't possibly be questioned, who's going to talk to us about precisely that problem. And then at the end of the week, our old friend Dom Frisbee, remember Dominic Frisbee? He's the, the comedian and the jack of all trades over in the UK. I said, Dom, you got to come back on my show and talk to us about what in heaven's name is going on over there because those people are really suffering with irrational lockdowns uh, like you wouldn't believe. So we're going to get the whole story about that. So uh, stay tuned, therefore, for these episodes. And if you like and appreciate what I'm doing, you are going to love the Tom Woods Show Elite, where you will fit in so wonderfully and wonder how have I not added this amazing, wonderful feature to my life that allows me to be myself and speak with normal, intelligent people about important things. Uh, go over to supportinglisteners.com and you'll see all the great goodies you get, including membership in the Tom Woods Show Elite. And I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.